The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show... We'll get deep in the trenches and take a look at the age-old battle between active management and passive strategies. Armed with fresh data from Morningstar's latest report. Overall, passive is still the big winner despite a very topsy-turvy couple of years. Here's my conversation with Ed Rosenberg, the head of ETFs for American Century Investments. Jerome Schneider, head of short and low-duration portfolio strategies at PIMCO. And Ben Johnson, director of global ETF research at Morningstar. Ben, uh, I read your report carefully. Only 47% of all active managers outperformed their benchmarks in the year ending in June. The performance is really a lot worse over longer periods. We'll discuss that later. Summarize why active managers can't outperform. Well, it boils down to a, a few things, Bob. And, and one of those things really is survivorship. What we see is that over longer periods of time, most active funds simply fail to survive. They don't make it from the beginning of the period to the end. And why do they fail to survive? And in most cases, they fail to deliver the goods. They fail to outperform their benchmarks. And that's in no small part because they have a very high hurdle. And that hurdle is oftentimes their fees. They're oftentimes their own worst enemies to the extent that they overcharge relative to what they're actually able to deliver for investors. Yeah, survivorship is very important, and it's one of the things you, you guys have always been on top of. And I think it, it, it's important. A lot of funds are just terrible and they close and people don't account for that uh you do by the way love the guitars behind you very rock and roll there ben uh, ed you oversee several actively managed equity etfs uh for american century uh and for uh, uh in general and they've outperformed this year now given the odds how do you do it how what do you how do you stick to your knitting and outperform given the odds that ben was describing there i mean i think it's a few things bob the portfolio managers stick to what they're good at Right, and we have three different types of active. So we have fundamental, which is a bottom-up approach. And then we have another approach, which is called, we'll call it fundamental, it's combining, or quantumental, I should say, combining quantitative with a fundamental approach, meaning a little bit different. And then we have more of a systematic approach. And each one of those managers have defined how they operate to stay within their bands, meaning do what they do well, focus on the stocks that fit what they're trying to do, and search for outperformance within that area. And the other thing, truthfully, is you guys mentioned it earlier with Ben, is fees are important. And the fees you charge are really important for those products. And if you look at the products we have, the fees are pretty reasonable for the active management that you're getting, especially compared to other products or even um, mutual funds in the space. Yeah, we'll get back to low fees in a minute. And you're right, uh, that is absolutely key. Now, Ben, equity managers aren't beating indexes, but it was intriguing in your report Bond fund managers seem to be doing a little bit better. So active managers in the intermediate core bond space, sort of the broadest space possible, did well. 84% beat their benchmarks. That was impressive to me, although I see over a 10-year period it slips down to 27%. Why did active bond management do well in the last year, Ben? And then I want to get to Jerome. Well, it speaks to the fact that active bond fund managers, unlike their stock picking peers, have generally over longer periods of time been able to add an increment of value by making out of benchmark bets. And what we saw in that one year look back that you mentioned, Bob, 
is that the overwhelming majority of active managers in the intermediate core bond Morningstar category beat their average passive peer precisely because they took on more credit risk relative to the average index mutual fund or ETF in their category. So they can color outside the lines in a way that index funds by definition can't. They can be more opportunistic and they can reap rewards from coloring outside the lines and being more opportunistic as many did uh, in this most recent episode we saw in the markets. So, Jerome, is that what you did? Now, you, you run the PIMCO Enhanced Short Maturity Active ETF. Mint is the symbol. That's, I believe, it's the second biggest actively managed bond ETF in the world. You outperformed as well. well what's the difference between active versus passive bond funds? You, you know, well, you, we talked earlier. You were saying you were, there's thousands of stocks you could choose from, but there's millions of bonds to choose from. Does that well, give you I, flexibility? I think the flexibility is important, and you're right to highlight that, you know, ETF isn't spelled P-A-S-S-I-V-E any longer. I think that flexibility, especially in bond funds, bond ETFs, uh, allows for not only coloring inside the lines, but also not being, not being forced to color at all. And so I think one of the things that Ben's report highlights is actually really important, that active ETFs actually allow for a degree of flexibility, perhaps taking additional credit risk, but it's also, as the landscape changes, which we are in an age of transformation right now, we need to be able to adapt and not necessarily picking to color outside the lines, but also picking to color maybe a little bit less within the lines, within the index. And that's really what is going to be the deciding factor about thinking about performance, not only the beta, but also the alpha, the ability to differentiate between indexes and more importantly, the risks that the indexes might pose in the current economic environment. And I think that's one of the critical facets between active equities and active fixed income, which needs to be digested fully by investors. And so as we move to a more expansive universe of fixed income ETFs, that active approach will be an incredibly large differentiator, as been highlighted in his report. Uh, so did, I think did, when, go, go, uh, just I want to get this point across. Did, did, did you take more credit risk than your passive peers? Is that why you outperformed? I mean, just tell us what exactly happened here, because it's not obvious. Uh, you know, well, you can do anything you want, essentially. You can go to cash. <laughs> so. No, I mean, that, that, that is fair. But what we seek to do is build a diversified portfolio. And having the resources to run the gamut of different types of asset classes, not just corporate credit, but look at structured products, maybe have a little bit more cash, think about where an interest rate curve might be more sensitive and be more advantageous to clients. That's really the facet which hasn't been fully optimized or optimized at all within the passive universe of ETFs for a very long time. And so in the past, while, while the Fed was in its new normal policy measures, being very vigilant, low volatility, and providing a very balanced view of where credit spreads and risk appetite was, that was fine. You could possibly take more credit risk, whether it's in corporate credits or structured products. But now that we are evolving to this age of transformation, it actually is critically important to create differentiation within the product and not necessarily embed or be wedded to a growing aspect of the beta risk in the index that, that might actually prove very harmful to investors. And so just one thing to point out, you know, back in 2008, the, the uh, composition within the Barclays aggregate, the fixed income uh, aggregate index, was about, it was about 8% for triple Bs. Now it's north of 15%. So simply by owning the index, you're owning a lot more credit risk, which may not necessarily be the right positioning to have in this current environment where we sit here today with growth moderating and a variety of central bank policies creating a, a propensity for a right. little bit more volatility in the future. Okay. Uh, now, Ben, I want to go back to why active managers underperform, because this is a teaching moment for those of us who've been watching this 
We, we've known about this for decades. You've been covering this for many, many years. And I'm wondering how you account for the persistence of active management. There, there's three points the report seems to make here. First is that the market concept of market timing doesn't really work. It's hard to be right going in and, and going out. Uh, high fees and commissions erode alpha. That seems to be the second point here. And, and third, uh, I hear this from my old buddy Larry Swedrow all the time, more professionals are competing against other professionals. It's just harder because it's, there, there's just fewer uh, individuals in the market and more professionals to compete against. So sort of sum up this for us. How, how do you account for the persistence of active management? Are, are they selling us something that we want to believe but isn't really true? I mean, riff on this for a minute. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, we've talked about fees already, Bob, so that's that's really foundational. I, I think the other point that Larry rightly picked up on is just the dynamic of the market itself. It's not that these managers, these portfolio managers, there's teams of analysts aren't incredibly bright, skilled, uber-intelligent, well-equipped. They're as bright, skilled, intelligent, as well-equipped as they've ever been. So we've moved long past the days of Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington Generals, where professionals could pick on a large contingent of individual retail traders uh, and, and get out ahead of them and outsmart them. It's now kind of wash, Harlem Globetrotters versus Harlem Globetrotters, NBA All-Star Game, whatever you want to call it. This isn't you know, LeBron versus me in a pickup game. This is LeBron versus himself. So the level of skill that you see, especially in the U.S. market, is as high as it's ever been. It's as hotly competitive as it's ever been. So it's harder than ever to eke out alpha. And if you want to look at a contrast there, my colleagues in China actually have done a similar analysis of the Chinese funds market, where there's a huge active retail investor base. And what you see is that 90 plus percent of actively managed mutual funds in China manage to beat their indexed peers. So I, I think this is you know, one proof point uh, of one of the most fundamental factors that, that drives what we see in this analysis. Yeah, Swedro likes to say the pool of victims is shrinking in the U.S., meaning retail uh, investors who are not as sophisticated. We'll get to that in a minute here. But uh, Ed, uh, you're a guy. You, you, you uh, oversee a, a several actively managed ETF. You, let me look at some of your holdings here. You run the Advantis U.S. Equity ETF, AVUS. Yeah. Now, explain how you pick stocks. I'm looking at this, and again, this looks mostly like high-quality tech and pharma here. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Johnson & Johnson. I, I see these in a lot of funds these days. But what's the criteria you use for picking funds? So think of for AVUS, for example, think of it more as a, a modern approach to active management where it's combining the, you know, the, what you get from indexes, which is diversification and low fees. But instead of relying on the index or waiting for a rebalance period, which may be monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, even annually, the portfolio managers are looking at it every day to account for the, the things they want to account for, right? So they're not just looking for the things you would normally look at market cap. They're also looking at balance sheet and profitability, and you're combining what goes with an index along with an active management in a, what you could call a best of both worlds for that situation. And so with something like AVUS, you get the full diversification and you get it at a pretty reasonable price at 15 basis points. So that's why you would say that it goes back to the fee discussion that we just talked about. And it also is combining different things that make it attractive to both index and active users. Yeah, and I'm, you're putting up here, we're putting up the advantage small cap value, that's done well this year, but small caps have done 
fairly well. And, you know, we know yep. historically, not, not to get into, you know, academic studies like, you know, from a French two-factor, uh, we, we know that small cap and value, two factors, do tend to outperform over time, although they, they have not in many, many years. So you're sort of in that sweet spot this year where some parts of the year, small cap and value, have done, have done very, very well. Do, do you still, I'm asking a generic question, Ed, but do you still believe in the concept of small cap and, and value as factors that are, will long-term outperform? I mean, I do, and it, let's add into that what the portfolio managers also account for. They also account for like balance sheet profitability as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that tilt towards small cap and value, which I think over the long term can outperform. And you'll see periods of underperformance with that, but if you hold it for a long period of time, it will outperform. But when you yeah. start adding in other metrics like a profitability or looking at the balance sheet and taking into account what makes a company a good company, it actually gives you more of an advantage as well, right? Yeah. Over time, you should be able to outperform by even more. And if, if that graphic right. of AVUV, I'm sure, in the last year has shown a huge yeah. outperformance. The problem, uh, Ed, is, is uh, over time, small cap might outperform big cap, uh, and uh, you might see other little outperformances elsewhere, uh, but it may take a long time. And it's, it, the small cap people and the value people have been waiting many years for a little bit of outperformance. Jerome, I want to turn to you. Active bond phone, uh, funds did well in lower volatility as well. You're the bond fund guy. While I've got you here, give us your take on where interest rates are going today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, interest rates are obviously been in Plumbix uh, really over the past week, especially front-end rates at this point in time. Uh, the digestion and trying to figure out exactly where the landing point is for inflation is obviously front and center, not just here in the United States, but globally. You know, supply chain constraints, labor economics, things like this, the employment cost index from last week. These are all factors which are ultimately going to figure out and, and really come into construct of how the term premium plays out. So long story short is we are probably in for a period more immediately of a little bit higher inflation, which will effectively moderate as we get into 2022. Um, and it's going to create a little bit of tension, especially for the Federal Reserve, who's going to have to be a little bit more patient as the digestion for inflation actually occurs. And we see some of these supply hindrances come back mm -hmm. online and alleviate some of this, some of this uh, effect. I think one of the key points, though, here, uh, Bob, is really this. When you think about where we've come from, in fact, where we've come from, what we used to call the, the new normal, um, doesn't really apply anymore. And I think that era of low rates and low volatility has gone by the wayside. Now, when we get into this area of a more new neutral policy, that effectively means that the cycles are a little bit shorter. Uh, the amplitudes of the cycles are probably a little bit more severe, higher and lower. And as a result, when we think about the response function, the response function is probably going to be a little bit more passive, patient uh, from the Federal Reserve, especially if they see spikes a little bit beyond their comfort level for inflation. So ultimately, when they bring that inflation back in closer to that 2% PCE, which is well above higher at this point in time, then they're going to actually find a little bit more runway, not necessarily to be in that rate hiking sequence at all. So our forecast for rate hikes is probably uh, still 2023, maybe it pushed uh, very into late 2022. But right now, we think that inflation begins to moderate and that will give the Fed a little bit more leniency in terms of how yeah. they respond to so the current over conditions. the weekend everybody was talking about Goldman Sachs call about maybe rates starting to hike in July of 2022 doesn't that seem a little early to you I know this is Goldman making the call but you know yeah it, it, it I think seems like an aggressive I, call to me 
Well, it seems aggressive, but frankly, that's where the market's pricing right now. And when you look at, you basically have a 44% uh, chance of probability of a hike in June, uh, and you probably have two hikes priced in uh, fully for the 2022. So the market is actually there uh, in, into that construct. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily off the market. It's probably more consensus yeah. if you want to actually look at the market. I think what is important, though, is understanding how the digestion actually occurs. So you have to take a view on or is the inflation that we're seeing actually getting baked into the psychology, into the framework, into the long-term inflationary expectations of the investor. If you don't believe so, and the Fed doesn't at this point in time, but we'll find out more later this week, then you're going to actually see that those rates rise potentially if that inflation uh, gets, gets carried away. If it doesn't, then you're going to see a Fed okay. being more patient, not necessarily uh, hiking twice in 2022. That's the tension okay. right now. All right. So, sorry to get a little wonky, folks, but I got a bond guy here, so I got to you know, hit him up on this. I want to get back to the active versus passive debate. Uh, and, and anybody can jump in here. It, it seems like passive is winning the inflow game, no matter what you say. We, we've had, I think, $700 billion in inflows this year into ETS. We've got a record year. I put up the numbers here. Most of it is passive still. Active is still a very small part of the inflows, uh, even with mutual fund conversions we, we keep hearing uh, about. Uh, is there any reason to think that, that this is going to change? Ed, you and I were, were talking about this earlier, just massive inflows in, into passive funds again this year. Yeah, and let's start off with a lot of, there's a lot of ETF models out there to start with that own passive. And active, while it's been around since 2008 in the ETF landscape, has been slow to adopt, especially on the equity side. I mean, two years ago at the end of, well, almost two years ago, uh, at the end of 2019, the active space was only 100 billion. I mean, it does, sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to the overall ETF space, it was a really small percentage. The end of last year, it grew to 174 billion. And the equity space was the first time it really grew. It was only 15% at 19, and then it grew significantly to about eh, almost doubled around 30%. But the issue you have, Bob, is a lot of these funds are new in the active space with the advent of different structures like not being able to show your holdings every day or what we call semi-transparent. It's really been more ETFs have been coming to market. And this year alone, there have been more active ETF launches than passive. So I think you're beginning to see a lot more active come in. And I think time will tell if they can supplant some of the passive. But because they're ETFs, yeah. A lot of the ETFs have a lower fee structure than you know, mutual funds, traditional mutual funds, because they're new products. And so yeah. having that lower fee structure can attract yeah. more to take a chance. So, Ben, is that going to make a difference? I mean, if active doesn't outperform passive in a mutual fund space, is it possible it could do better in an ETF space if the fees are lower? Well, absolutely. Incrementally better, Bob, to the extent that the fees are lower, first and foremost. And to the extent that the ETF wrapper might mean that those strategies are delivered in a way that's more tax efficient to the end investor who's investing taxable money in that particular strategy in a taxable account. Now, while those two things may reduce the force of gravity on active strategies, I should stress that they are not a pair of anti-gravity boots and none of these things is a given. So we can know to an extent with certainty that the fees might be lower. What we've seen to date is actually kind of a mixed bag with respect to tax efficiency when we look at the same strategy as it's been delivered through an ETF versus an open-ended mutual fund. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we haven't seen a lot of sort of two-way flow into these ETFs and outflows in particular 
which are critical for purging low-cost tax lots and getting that uptick in tax efficiency relative to what you might get from a mutual fund. So again, a gravity reducer, but you know, we're not talking about a pair of anti-gravity boots when we take an active strategy yep. and convert it to an ETF, replicate it into an ETF, you name it. The ETF has undeniable benefits for the end investor, but they don't cure everything. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, all right, everybody, I'm going to have to leave it there. Fascinating discussion. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Ben Johnson from Morningstar, my old friend. Uh, ben, thanks for sticking around. You know, you and I have been doing this a long time, and it's very interesting to see the arguments that active management make even despite overwhelming evidence that they underperform. Remember 15 years ago when, they, when the, there was strong evidence even then, and they were saying, oh, who would want to buy mediocrity? You know, buying, betting with the averages is a, a bet on mediocrity. Uh, they've sort of dropped that, and now their argument is, oh, passive is getting too big. If something happens, I mean, uh, you know, th this is going to be a problem. Everybody's going to be passive, and nobody's going to be trading stocks, and the market will be inefficient. So let me ask you, right now, how big is passive versus active in the equity market? Do we, do we have a rough idea? Uh, and, and what is your thoughts on this? Is there any point where uh, it, uh, passive investing will get so high that it might affect the efficient functioning of the markets? Yeah, good questions, Bob. So if, if you look at the share of passively managed stock fund assets, let's call it, and just look specifically at U.S. mutual funds and ETFs, what you see is we sit here today, over half of all of U.S. stock fund assets are invested in index funds. So that paints a, a pretty interesting picture, especially if you go back to 1976 when Jack Bogle launched the first ever retail index mutual fund, which at the time was called Bogle's Folly. That share was zero. So here we are now, you know, decades later, more than half of all investors' money that's parked in U.S. equity funds is parked in index funds. Now, if you zoom out a little bit further and just look at like global total market capitalization and all types of index strategies, so that's mutual funds, ETFs, mandates that are being run privately by pension funds, you name it, roughly a quarter of all of total global equity market cap is indexed today. So it's still in the minority if you zoom out and look at it big, big picture. Now, what looks different is that each incremental dollar that's coming to the market, at least in the US, uh, what you see is the majority certainly um, in the US fund space is, is going into index funds, which I think has got, got a lot of people concerned and I, I would say wrongfully so. They're, they're worried about just mindless money coming to the market, just buying whatever the index is serving up. Uh, why I'm not concerned about that, at least not at present, is because you know, where prices are set is, is at the margin. It's, it's when trades are made. It's that buying and selling activity that takes place all day, every day, as long as the markets are open. And a tiny minority of actual trading volume is happening because investors are allocating to index funds, be they ETFs, mutual funds, private mandates, you name it. Most estimates are somewhere between 5 and 10% of actual stock trading activity comes back to 
index funds. So I, I think we're a very long ways off from any sort of tail wags dog type scenario. And frankly, I think that's a narrative that you know is is taken on different forms over time. It's probably as old as time. Like you go back to the go-go years of the 60s and people were worried about you know the quote unquote mutual fund situation when US retail investors were first buying mutual funds for the first time and all the pros were worried about you know retail investors flooding for the exits and causing markets to collapse. So it, I, I think you hear a lot of this narrative, it prevails not based on data, but based on people kind of protecting their turf, right? And ETFs, despite the fact now that we're near 30 years into this experiment in the United States are still the new kid on the block in many respects. And you've still got a lot of people trying to throw rocks at them, get them to go away because ETFs, index funds have been drinking active managers milkshakes now for decades. Yeah, I agree with your point. It seems amazing to me because there's such a, an awfully high level of stock trading that's still going on. And most of this is in fact actual trading. And if you look at ETF creations and redemptions, most of the time, and you know this of course, Ben, when you trade a SPY or S&P 500 fund, most of the time there is no trading of the underlying that's actually going on most of the time. So the, the important thing is, who's doing all this trading? Somebody is at this point. I don't, I don't get it. And I, I guess there is an interesting academic question of what would happen if, say, you know, 50% of all the ownership, or 80%, pick a number that's really high, of all the equity ownership was in passive index funds. Would that affect the efficiency of the market? I know people would say even then, no, because as you pointed out, it's any kind of trading at the margin is what sets the prices. So even if it's 10%, you, that's what sets the prices at that point. So I, I, I suppose it's an academic question about market efficiencies that, that might have some value, but I, I find it hard to believe that this is an important question. Let me ask you about Robinhood yeah, and the traders. Point, though, Bob, there with the, the, the trading volume for ETFs in particular, and, and not only most of the time is the tail not wagging the dog, but the tail's not even attached to the dog, right? Because most of the turnover you see in SPY, for example, on any given day, it's just you and me selling shares of SPY back to one another on the New York Stock Exchange. It's not actually creating, in many cases, any trading activity in those underlying stocks. So that is incredibly important. And like, where's that theoretical upper bound? It's, it's a question that gets asked all the time. I asked it years ago, this is going back to 2014, I had the opportunity uh, to interview Gene Fama, the father of the efficient markets hypothesis. And I said, how far could this go in theory? And he said, in theory, all it would take is one really smart, call it omniscient active investor to set fair prices in the market and everybody else could index. Now, that is clearly an extreme. The truth is probably somewhere between where we are today and that extreme. And what I would say is that if we ever get to the point where all of a sudden there are $100 bills in front of the market steamroller because pricing is so inefficient, the market's going to self-heal. Smart people That's are right. going to step in, pick up those $100 bills and wrap them up and give them back to their investors. That's the obvious answer. You're right. Um, let me move on and ask you about the Robinhood you know, traders. Larry Swedro, my old buddy who you know at Buckingham, used to say that the pool of victims has been shrinking for years. And this is one of the reasons uh, that it's hard for active managers to outperform because they're not, they're, they're, they're not competing against retail investors are competing against other professional investors. Now, in the last year and a half or so, 
Um, we've had a whole new pool of retail investors coming in. I don't want to exaggerate it. I mean, the, the numbers are vary, but it's somewhere, the estimates are about somewhere around 20% of trading might be retail. What about those people? Is the fact that we have a, a, a new pool of younger investors out there, uh, is, is that a, a group that active managers can seek to exploit, or would they even be successful in, in, in exploiting them? Yeah, I, I think it's going to vary on a case-by-case -case basis. So I, I think broadly speaking, you know, we've moved a, a long way from kind of a pro versus amateurs game when it when it comes to stock trading. So historically, the number of sort of amateur retail traders, uh, the, the percentage of amateur retail traders and in, in their sort of overall share of uh, your trading volumes was much, much higher than it is today. What we've got now is no longer a pro-am, it's, it's pro-on-pro. And these are the best pros we've ever seen in anyone's lifetime. So the game is much more competitive because the stakes are so high. And because it's so competitive, because the stakes are so high, it's gotten more difficult to, to add value to, to find alpha. So I, I don't think at kind of a big scale, what we've seen in terms of the rise of the retail trader, be it Robinhood traders or traders, frankly, across any number of different online brokerage platforms is really going to disrupt that long-term trend. But we have certainly seen instances, you know, be it with stocks like GameStop, where something that sort of takes shape within that crowd is ultimately exploited by pros who are watching very carefully, who are waiting for opportunities to step in and take the opposite side of a trade or take the same side of a trade if there's enough money to be made. And I think that panned out in a very real and very like high profile way with, with what we saw with GameStop. Yeah. Well, I keep getting asked about GameStop uh, eternally and by people who say, well, Bob doesn't, uh, it, it's, you know, what people think might make a dollar next year and it's $160. Obviously, this doesn't make sense. Does this mean fundamental analysis doesn't mean anything anymore? And I say, well, listen, fundamental analysis is a, a system based on valuing a future stream of earnings or dividends that was, you know, goes back to the very origins of the stock market and why stocks were invented in the first place. That's what it was for. Uh, and yet, if you get a certain number of people trading on other metrics, on astrology, remember Arch Crawford? Uh, <laughs> if you get a sufficiently large group on a different belief system or technical analysis, um, you know, there's no reason to think why a stock would trade exclusively on fundamental analysis. What, I mean, well, how do you look at that? For example, you mentioned the GameStop situation. Yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of like a high stakes game of musical chairs, right? And you're just kind of making a bet that, you know, you're going to be the one to have, you know, your rear end on a seat by the time that the music stops. And they, that only, you know, applies to one person by the time that game's over. So how long can that game go on? I mean, certainly it's gone on much longer than I personally would have expected it to. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm of the opinion that fundamentals are going to, to rule the day at, at, at some point. Um, and either, you know, the firm and the franchise grow to you know, deserve the multiple that they get today. And that's not unique to GameStop. There are other firms out there where we see this apply, like Tesla's has been in this seat for quite some time. Uh, or the price comes back down to be sort of more appropriately calibrated against the cash flow generating ability of that company. Yeah. Let me uh, just ask you about the fees and the commissions. You know, one of the things we've always known, and Vogel talked about this 25 years ago, is 
high fees, commissions are alpha killers. Um, and one of the main reasons that mo many good fund managers actually underperform is because of the fees and commissions. I'm wondering if the fact that fees are coming down a bit, some are, um, not just the ETF space, but some fees are coming down. And in many cases, we're going to zero commissions. Do, does, do you have any sense that that might improve the picture long term uh, for, for active managers uh, at all? Or is it it's still too incrementally small to make a difference? Yeah, I, I think every little increment helps, right? So every penny that an investor is not paying in fees is a penny that they keep for themselves and they're not handing over to an asset manager or if you see an active manager now offering uh, actively managed ETFs, right? There's the prospect for some big tax savings there. So that's another penny or dollar that you're not handing to Uncle Sam that you keep in your pocket compounds to your benefit. It's inarguable that that's a good thing for investors. Does it leave them any better off than they would be if they invested in a low-cost index fund? That's the question. I, I think what you see in terms of you know ETF repackaging, right? Mutual funds converting to ETFs, strategies that we've known for a long time, like Fidelity Contra Fund, um, now available in an ETF wrapper. That reduces somewhat the force of gravity on these managers, but it's not a pair of anti-gravity boots. Yeah. One of the biggest things that's plagued them over long periods of time is just being able to live. Um, and most funds don't live because they failed to perform. And it's been a really challenging environment, especially the past 10 years for active stock pickers in particular, because the market's just been trending up and to the right. And it's really been a small handful of names that have done a lot of the lifting. So any yeah, stock that's picker that's been underweight a name like an Amazon, an Apple, or a Microsoft has been trying to keep up and having a really tough time doing it by virtue of being either underweight or just not even owning some of the market's best performing names. Now, what I would say is that looking forward, like the, the setup may not be great for index investors. And it's a moment that I think many lived through in the dot-com era, which you know showed what are some of the, the faults of indexing, right? The market can go too far. It can get too excited about certain names, certain sectors. Eventually, if that turns, indexing is going to feel like a much less good idea than it's felt like for the past 10 years. But look back to that period, right? Ultimately, since that period, indexing has proven its worth again. Yeah. So you're going to have to live through tough times no different than you would for an good active point. strategy if you're an indexer. Yeah. All right, Ben, we're going to have to leave it there. I very much appreciate your time. Ben Johnson, of course, my old friend at Morningstar and author of the Passive Active Morningstar Report, which comes out twice a year, by the way. Ben, we'll have you back when the next one comes out. Thanks very much. And everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks, Bob. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.